standing as we read from God's word this morning. Our sermon text today comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. I am the vine, and you are the branches. choose me, but I choose you. Keep my words and follow my voice. Whatever you ask, it will be given to you. Wherever you go, I am with you. each other as I have loved you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Good morning, family. It's really good to see each one of you here and to gather with you. If you're visiting with us, uh, especially glad that you're with our family to worship Jesus this morning. So thank you for uh, choosing to be with us. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work. 
Father, as we begin uh, this morning, we want to stop and pause and, and, and ask what we do every week, just expressing our uh, dependency. Um, none of us who are your kids are, are here because we think we're great Christians or are just killing it. We're here because uh, we know how just absolutely dependent we are upon you uh, for everything. And so we're here, to, we're here together as a family to hear your voice again. We need hope. We need strength. We need peace. We, we know all of these things come from you. And so we're here as your kids, posturing ourselves as needy, uh, believing that you have what we need. Father, we also uh, want to pause in remembrance or reflection of those uh, lives who were lost 20 years ago. I have no doubt that for most of this weekend, everybody here, their thoughts and their emotions have probably been occupied or consumed to some degree with memories of loved ones lost or friends lost. Really a day that altered our generation has really charted a course for 20 years, and it's a generation that we all represent. And so, Father, this morning we acknowledge that there were those who were lost and family members remain, and many of those family members even today live in a valley of the shadow of death. And so we just pray, Jesus, that you would prove yourself to be the sunrise for those who are grieving and living under the dark clouds, the gloomy clouds of the shadow of death, and that you, through your kindness, would dispel those clouds and give the life that only you can give. Father, we thank you that you will pour out your grace for your fame and for the good of others. So we pray <clears throat> expectantly. And Spirit, please open our ears this morning to hear our Father's voice and open our eyes to see him clearly. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we press on this week, I think week three, in our uh, exploration through the gospel according to John. You guys know the word gospel means good news. We're talking about the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he did. Sometimes people get a little thrown off by the way gospel according to John's, like everybody just allowed to write however they want to. I think the according to piece is just acknowledging that there are human authors in scripture. And while the Holy Spirit works through them, each one of them are writing from a different perspective. Just like if you and I shared an experience after church today and we each wrote about it, it would sound very, our accounts would sound very different from each other. Not contradictory, just different. So we're hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, according to John. Our series theme has been entitled, Jesus is Life. And this morning, what we'll consider is this, Jesus is life because life drawn from Jesus is like good wine, satisfying my soul, sweetening my sorrows, and sustaining my joy. Now, that's the big idea of our passage today, and it's stated positively. Some of you like to state things negatively. I don't know why, but you just do. So here it is. I stated it negatively for you. Life drawn apart from Jesus is like poor wine, leaving my soul unsatisfied, sorrowful, and joylessly hungover. And then one more approach, maybe a compare and contrast, and just because it's fun to work with words, Rebellion from Jesus is like I'm limited for life to one bottle of Walmart wine. <laughs> Returning to Jesus 
is like I have a limitless lifetime supply of Napa Valley wine. You chuckle, but that's really the heart of the passage, the narrative that we're going to explore this morning. One more comment. I very rarely mention titles. Titles don't really matter. All the sermons get titled just for the internet, but I do want to mention one thing. I I have a title for this one this morning. It's Better Wine, but I want to pay homage to my Baptist roots, and for those of you who come from circles like I do, you don't have to roll with better wine. Um, Better Welches might be a good substitute for you, (laughs) but I do want to push on just one thing. All through my upbringing, um, well into my college years and seminary, what I heard taught and learned uh, from teaching and preaching was that there was not There were not alcoholic beverages in the New Testament. So here in this miracle, Jesus did not create an alcoholic drink. He created a a grape juice, Welch's, right, not wine. I just want to say that's not historically accurate. Uh, This is an alcoholic beverage. However, let me just add this, though. The alcohol content by volume of alcoholic beverages in the New Testament, just culturally, was far less than what they are now. So your glass of wine, 11%, maybe 12, maybe higher, um, almost double that of beer. Um, So in the New Testament, those beverages were diluted. So a glass of wine would be more like a, a bottle or a can of beer. So there is a difference culturally, but just with full integrity have to understand Jesus is turning water into a beverage for the enjoyment of the people at the wedding uh, that does contain alcohol, okay? Just so now I paid homage to my, uh, my Baptist upbringing now, and we set the record straight. Um, so better wine, or if you prefer, uh, and are so convicted, which is fine, better Welch's. So the narrative today invites us to get around a wedding. Or, as someone once famously said, marriage is what brings us together today. There, I checked a box on my life goals now, so I've worked it into a sermon. Marriage is what brings us together today. It's It's a story about marriage. It's a story about marriage. The marriage takes place in Cana. We read this. Let's just kind of summarize what we read in the text. It takes place in Cana. Here's a map from our first couple weeks. We know that the gospel, according to John, like John's storytelling or his recounting, originates in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. That's where he calls his first three followers. Remember that? We had uh, the first three there. And then what we learned was Jesus crosses the Jordan and goes on a road trip to Galilee, which is a region. And now we learn his destination. And so he's going to the, the county, if you will. And so the city or the town he is going to is Cana. Now, one of his first followers is actually from Cana. We had Andrew, Simon, who became Peter. Uh, Who else? Philip and Nathaniel, and then an unnamed disciple. Uh, What we learn is Nathaniel is actually from Cana. So maybe it's a friend of Nathaniel's who's getting married. We We don't really know. A family member, maybe. But what we do know is the marriage, the wedding ceremonies in Cana, uh, and two historical notes about weddings, very different than our expression today. Um, And you know what I miss? I love Okinawa, but you know what I miss? Weddings. Y'all don't get married over here. And if you do, it's just paperwork. Um, I miss officiating weddings back in the States. Since I've been here as a pastor, I've only officiated two and one vow renewal. And in order to officiate one of those two, I actually had to fly to Napa Valley, um, seriously, um, to officiate. It was two young um, members of our church family who had 
PCS'd and were already married but wanted to have the ceremony for their family in Napa Valley. And they were very kind to fly me in and allow me to officiate their wedding. Uh, the other was John and Satomi, not too, not too long ago, on the beach right here at uh, Taguchi Beach, I think. And then one vow renewal. So guys, like we need to work together and remedy the absence of festivities that we can officiate and celebrate. So um, I understand it's challenging to be married in that way out here. So maybe if we could just start regularly scheduling vow renewals as a family, like that would be, that'd be beautiful. I'd love to, to share those celebrations with you. All right. So we got a wedding ceremony, two ways they were different. Our wedding ceremonies and celebrations last how long? A day, max, half a day, late afternoon into the evening. Um, not so here. These ceremonies were usually a week long, sometimes more than that. So a week of preparing, celebrating, partying, feasting, all the things, guys, a week. Can you imagine? That'd be, some of you guys are shaking your heads, no. I mean, it depends on the food, right? I mean, that's how we receive our wedding invitations. It's not so much on who we know. It's like, what's their venue and what are they serving? I'll go to that one, right? I'll go. A week long. The one other difference was who in our culture pays for the big meal? Yeah, not there, not there. It was the groom, which will be relevant to our story. Um, And if they were a family of means and doing a really big party, like the groom's family, but the groom essentially was responsible for the party, okay? So there we are, Cana. Week-long party, groom's responsible for all the finances. We read that Mary is there, Jesus' mother is there. And the way that her role unfolds in the story, she's not just there as an invited guest. She's involved in the, in the meal serving and the planning, if you will. Like when I married Linnea, uh, two women I can think of, Aunt Becky, um, she was Linnea's mom's friend, and Mrs. Robertson, who made our pizzelles for the wedding I don't really know what that's like a New Jersey Italian dessert thing. Anyway, Pazell. And so these two women, they weren't just invited to the wedding. They were controlling aspects of our gathering. They were involved. That's Mary here, right? Because she's involved when the wine runs out. She's kind of taking charge when the wine runs out. So she's there as more than a guest. And then we read Jesus and the boys are there. His first five followers, Jesus and the gang get an invitation. So they're there. They're at the wedding. We read early on in the wedding, the, the wine runs out. It's all gone, which is a big deal. Um, a big deal. You got a party for a week and the wine runs out early on. That's a big problem and potentially very embarrassing for the groom. So Mary, involved with the planning and the presentation of the wedding, comes to Jesus. She says, son, um, we're out of wine. I know you're able to do something um, and I know you're kind. So um, would you please do something about the wine? Jesus looks at his mom. You all feel this is rude, the way he responds. We'll, we'll unpack it in a minute. And he just says to her, woman, it, it's not my time. Uh, what he means is, um, it's not my time to go public. Uh, I'm not here to do my mother's will, if you will. We know Jesus was here to do the will of whom? The father, right? So not my time to go public, uh, not my time. Mary pulls a strong mom move. She gets the answer and then just looks at the servants and says, just do whatever he says, right? Do whatever he says. Jesus looks to the servants. They've got the six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. It's a lot of water. Uh, the, the pots were there for just washing their hands and washing their feet all week long. Okay, that's what it's there for. Jesus wants them filled to the brim. They fill them to the brim. He turns the water into wine. 
It says, take the, water, take the wine to the master of the feast. You guys hire a wedding coordinator or an MC of sorts. That's, that's who's getting the taste of the wine. Uh, this guy's mind is blown. He, he calls the groom over and he's like, yo, taste this. You're doing this backwards, man. Like you're, the way the text reads is you're supposed to serve the very best wine first while everybody's sober. And then when their senses are dulled, that's actually the verb in that verse. When they're inebriated or drunk, then you just roll the discount wine off the Walmart shelves into the wedding party and nobody will know the difference. Nobody will know. He's like, what are, what are you doing? Like you're doing this all backwards. So they have this conversation, and then uh, John gives an important statement in verse 11. You saw that. He introduces us to a word which is very important to our narrative. What does he say? This was the first sign of many signs that Jesus would perform for the people of Cana. Now, this word is exceptionally important. How many of you have had a, maybe a lit profe- uh, lit- literature professor, uh, lit teacher, uh, have you read a story and write a report and you read your report and they look at you and they're like, no, that's not at all what this story means. Like you're interpret- interpreting it all wrong. Like you, you didn't get this at all. Read it again. Write another report. The sign exists to interpret the story for us. So it's really important that John says all of this was a sign that Jesus did. Now, we know signs exist not to draw attention to themselves, but why? Signs exist to draw your attention to something else that you need to be aware of, a speed limit, a hazard, whatever, road crossing. Except here in Okinawa, there are some signs which do exist for themselves, and those are the strobe-like construction signs at nighttime that rotate and flash. You know what I'm talking about? Like somebody needs to tell the manufacturer signs don't exist for themselves. The only reason those signs exist is to draw attention to themselves and induce a seizure in my brain so that I actually can't pay attention to the hazard, right? Um, But all kidding aside, here's the point. Signs don't exist for themselves. So we have a beautiful wedding story, but if we make it all about the wedding, we miss the point. We have an incredible story about Jesus turning actual wine into, uh, I'm sorry, actual water into actual wine. But if we make it all about wine or water, we miss the point of the story, the sign. So what we're going to see this morning, there are two signs for the disciples and for the people of Cana. Two signs, very important. And then what we'll see, we'll step back. I mean, those signs are for us as well, but then we will consider, man, there, there are a lot of signs in this story. I just want to draw your attention to four of them after we talk about the signs for the followers of Jesus and for the people of Cana. So what were those two signs? Very simple. The first sign is Jesus turning the water into wine. And in verse 11, you've got it in front of you, you've got it on the screen. What does, what, what was the purpose of the sign? Well, it says the sign manifested Jesus' glory. Now, we don't use the word manifested at all unless you work for UPS or FedEx and you have like, or you're like an embarker and you've got shipping manifest, but nobody else uses the word manifest, right? So what does manifest mean? Manifest simply means to take something that's in the dark and bring it into the light. To take something that's hidden behind a curtain and pull the curtain back so that it's seen. Something that's previously invisible, make it visible. Manifest something, something previously unspoken, spoken. Something not seen, seen. Something that you don't know, now you know. Well, 
how did the sign manifest Jesus' glory, or what do we mean by that? The disciples understood that Jesus, though he was the Messiah, they understood he was a man just like they were. The sign was one of their first real indications that Jesus, while he was a man, was not just a man. He was the same as them, but he was unique and set apart and different in a very important way from them. So this is kind of their first um, glimpse of a truth that would become crystallized for them over time. Jesus is more than a man. He's the God man. Um, They only wished they could turn water into wine. You only wish, some of you, water into wine, water into Welch's, whatever your background is, you only wish, but you can't. You're not God. Jesus is. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, in whatever way he wants. His glory, his godness, his uniqueness, his set-apartness, his higher-than-us-ness was made clear in this moment. And the disciples are like, holy cow, this thing's for real. Did you just see what he did? Okay, so the first sign that we need to pay attention to is that that the disciples were given was here was their first real indication that Jesus was more than a man. He was God man. Uh, This is important for us. We don't often think about Jesus as man enough. Like it would it would benefit us to think more about Jesus humanity. And it's all over this passage. Um, He went to a wedding, for example, a week-long feast with his boys, festivities, dancing, eating, drinking, celebrating. Jesus participated gladly in all of these things. He's a man like us. And did you notice how the narrative ends? What happens? After the wedding feast, they take a 96, like they take a 72. They take some time, they take some leave, and they go to Capernaum, which was a beach town. They go down to Shatan, the harbor, like they take, they take a break, guys. Jesus was fully human in all these beautiful ways. But when John says the sign manifests his glory, that means this wedding experience isn't drawing our attention to his humanity as much as it's drawing our attention to his deity. Jesus is God. And the disciples believed. They believed. Have you believed? Undoubtedly, Jesus has performed signs for you, maybe not water to wine, but Jesus has certainly done things to demonstrate who he is to you. Have you believed? And here's a thought I had as I spent time in the text this week. I think it would be healthy for us to change or maybe add to the way that we pray for our friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't yet know Jesus. Guys, let's just like have a real moment for, 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 for a second. How many of you wrestle with guilt and shame because you feel like you don't consistently share the gospel and that when you do, it's, man, just really poorly done or inferior. And why am I afraid? And why am I so insecure? Like that whole gamut, like we, we can all taste and feel that right now, right? What if we, what if we pivoted a little bit and recognize that in the same way, like God is good enough to give signs to lead hearts to believe that Jesus is God. Has he stopped giving those signs to people who don't yet know Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think the, I think scripture is clear that the father still works in so many incredible ways to bring rebels to himself and into his family. What if we started praying for our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends and family members who don't yet know Jesus, that God in his kindness would give them signs 
throughout their weeks, throughout their routines, big signs, little signs, signs that would make it clear that Jesus is God and that he is good. And guys, when he talks about manifesting his glory, that's John's way of saying, all right, you thought he was worth following, he is. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your allegiance. He's worthy of your submission. He's God. What if we prayed for our friends that way, that they would have those signs? And then in those moments where they're wrestling with these things, we can very naturally step in and speak to God's goodness and his glory and his kindness. What if we prayed that way? What if we prayed that way for each other? Those of you who are already in the family, we admit our faith is weak. You all want signs. We write songs about getting signs and wanting signs, right? What if we prayed that way for each other? Father, in your kindness, would you give my brother another sign this week that you are who you say you are and you're good and strengthen his unbelief? Give belief to his heart. How life-giving would that be? So that's the primary sign. There's a secondary sign for them that's not really pointed out. So I'll be brief with this because the the wine sign, if you will, or the sign, uh, the wine that it points to, that's like right now, real time. Disciples see it, they taste it, they drink it. They're like, holy cow, dude, Jesus turned water into the best wine I've ever had. Insane. That leads to belief in their hearts and they... Their, their confidence grows. The second sign, though, is kind of future, and it's this. Jesus chose to perform his first sign in the context of a wedding. So the first sign points to the reality that not only does Jesus make true and better wine, it will eventually lead to his disciples understanding he himself is the true and better wine, right? It'll get there. They'll get there. But I imagine, too, a day two or three years later where they look back and they're like, yo, you remember that? Remember when Jesus turned water into wine? It was a wedding. Um, How cool is it that now that we understand that Jesus is also the true and better groom, like this all makes sense to us now. This all makes sense. We were these rebels who had run hard and fast, but Jesus and his love pursued us like we were his bride, and he brought us back home and made us his own. Isn't that crazy that he did two of those signs together at his first public appearance? So again, it's not a sign that they would have seen firsthand, but I guarantee a couple years later, or maybe even after the resurrection and ascension, they're sitting around like, isn't that insane that Jesus gave us both of those signs together? So the wine, but also the wedding stand as signs. So that was for them. There are signs here for us, and those signs are for us, but I want to draw your attention to four. I think there are a lot more, but to at least four that are relevant to us in the text. And here they are. Here's a list of four right off the top, just so you know where we're going. The first one is there's a sign that points to Jesus' kindness. Jesus is so kind in mercy. And there's a sign in this narrative that points us to that. Not only is he kind, Jesus is rich in mercy. And there's a sign in the narrative that points to that. Not not only is he kind, not only is he rich, but in his wealth, Jesus isn't stingy rich. Jesus is generous rich. He's rich in his mercy. There's a sign that points to that. And then there's one sign, maybe my favorite in the story, that points to the beautiful reality that Jesus is limitless in his mercy. And family, I mean, if you remember our big idea that drawing life from Jesus is like good wine, it satisfies my soul, sweetens my sorrows, and sustains my joy, that line, that last line is really good news for us because we are a room full of people who are, have sinned, we're, we're sinners, and so we sin, right? We, have, um, we need mercy. So it's good news for us that it's limitless because we're, we're coming out of a week where we've sinned again and we're wrestling with guilt and shame and you need this good news. Some of you are in here with incredible pain 
lingering sorrows. And so it's really good news for you that Jesus' mercy is not only kind, rich, and generous, but limitless. He's enough. Um, so we'll get there. Here are our four signs. The first sign, Jesus is kind in his mercy. Um, his mother is the sign. His conversation with his mother is the sign. Let's just revisit that brief conversation for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 3. It says, when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Hey, uh, Jesus, they have no more wine. This is a real big problem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you asking me? That's what it sounds like in English, doesn't it? And you're like, why are we making a point about Jesus' kindness? He just called his mom woman. Has anybody in here, any son or has any son ever referred to their mom with respect and love with that title? <laughs> like, what are we talking about kindness for? Just, just a minute. He says, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. All right. Sometimes the translation of scripture from the original to the, to the receptor language, like from the host to the receptor um, to our English is really really wonky or clunky or poor. And that's kind of what happened here. This is not Jesus being disrespectful in any way. Uh, the way this was voiced culturally would have been very appropriate, but here's what's happening. You ever remember a time as a younger man or a woman where you needed to assert yourself a little bit to your parents that you were an adult now and not a teenager anymore? This is Jesus as a young man in a loving, I know it's lost in translation, but in a loving, kind, and respectful way, asserting himself to his mom respectfully, and, and, and kind of brushing back her request a little bit and saying, Mom, I appreciate you asking, but um, now's not the time. Um, Maybe the conversation behind the scenes or the thoughts behind the words, again, which we've already alluded to, Jesus came to do the will of his father, not the will of his mother for his entire life. So this is, this is Jesus kind of respectful brushback of his mom's request and him asserting himself um, as, a, as a man and as Messiah. Mom, I, I hear you, but it's not time. And what he means by that, um, it, it's not time for me to go public yet. It's not time for me to start revealing my full glory to the people around me. It's honestly not time for me to start that journey that will culminate in my crucifixion, resurrection. It's not my time. It's not my dad's time for me. It's not time. So where do we see Jesus' kindness? Well, we see it in his response after his words. It was the wrong time, and you could even say maybe she asked in the wrong way. It wasn't private. It was very public. Um, and maybe she used the wrong words. And Jesus told her as much, Mom, it's not time. But then what did he do? He turned the water into wine. Now, she didn't know how he would respond. She just told the servants, hey, do whatever he says. She didn't know what he was going to say. But he's, he responded in a beautiful kindness. Now, here's what we need to see in Mary. She went confidently to Jesus, didn't she? Why did she go confidently? Two reasons. She knew what he was capable of. She knew who he was. She knew what Jesus was capable of. But not only did she know what he was capable of, she knew that her son was kind and good. And that combination, knowing he's capable and knowing he's kind, gave Mary a confidence that led her to ask. And yes, the asking was awkward and maybe even ill-timed, but she asked. And even after he said, it's not time, look at how confident she was. She turned to the servants and she said, whatever he says, you do. Do you know Jesus like that? Guys, when we don't know Jesus like that, we're prayerless. 
Like if you're looking for root reasons behind why we pray so poorly and so infrequently, your problem's not with prayer per se. This would be one of the root causes. We don't know Jesus this way. Maybe we doubt his capability, but I would submit to you, it's more likely that you doubt his kindness and his goodness. When you believe that Jesus is kind, your confidence will increase and you will boldly ask. Now, does Jesus always turn water to wine? No. And you know that because you've lived long enough. But if Jesus is kind, even when he doesn't answer yes, he still answers in kindness. So his no's are kind and his weights are kind. Wait, son, it's kind. How can we say that? Well, we ask for what we want, as we should. We ask the Father. Um, but in his kindness, Jesus sees things that we don't see. We ask for what we think is best. Jesus knows what is best. So when he says no, it's an act of kindness. When he says wait to you, it's an act of kindness. His yeses are kind. His noes are kind. His weights are kind. Can I just ask you one more question about that? Have you ever spoken to your heart like Mary spoke to her servants? I want to ask Jesus, so I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask him for something, and now I'm going to go to his word and hear his voice, and before, I, before he opens his mouth, I'm going to speak to my heart and say, whatever Jesus says today, that's what we're going to do. I mean, that's what Mary said to the servants. We will only tell our hearts that when we believe Jesus is kind. Jesus is kind in his mercy. Look at the way he responded to his mom. Is that not beautiful or what? Now was not the time... But look at this, look at this public kindness towards his mom. So Jesus is kind in his mercy. Jesus is also rich in his mercy. We see that in the groom. If this wedding exposed anything, and maybe this set off some alarm bells for the, like, this was not revealed in his dating profile for his all of a sudden bride, like, oh, damn, I, like, he can't even, he can't even, like, he can't even provide enough wine for the party. This relationship is not going to go well. Like, I don't know. The wedding party exposed the groom's insufficiency or his poverty. Isn't it embarrassing whenever your insufficiency is exposed? I get embarrassed when my insufficiency is exposed. His poverty was exposed. He didn't have enough money to buy wine. I get embarrassed when my poverty is exposed, poverty of wealth or whatever, whatever other poverty of my character exists. It's embarrassing. It was an embarrassing moment for him. Life exposed his insufficiency. Guys, we are the groom in the story. That's the sign. Life exposes our insufficiencies. Life exposes our inadequacies. Life exposes our poverty. Life exposed for the groom that he was out of wine, he couldn't buy any more in the moment, and he was incapable of making any in time for the feast. He couldn't buy what he needed, and he couldn't make what he needed. Guys, life exposes to your soul that you cannot buy what you need most, and you can't make what you need most. Can't buy peace, can't buy joy, can't buy happiness, can't make it. The thing you need most, reconciliation with your father because you have been a rebel and have a lifetime of rebellion against him. You can't make it on your own and you can't buy it on your own. Your insufficiency is exposed. And so Jesus shows himself to be the true and better groom because where the groom is impoverished and insufficient like us, he comes in our place and he is rich in mercy. He has the mercy we need to provide what our souls need but can't make or buy for ourselves. So the first sign through his mom, Jesus is kind. The second one through the groom, Jesus is rich. And look, we saw it when he went to, or when the master of the feast came to him, he said, 
He said this, uh, you know, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have, when they're drunk, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine till now. That helps us understand that not only does Jesus make the true and better wine, but what we will come to see in the gospel is Jesus himself is the true and better wine. So Jesus is kind in his mercy, and Jesus is rich in his mercy. And what we see in the third set of characters, the wedding guests, who really don't have a, they don't have a vocal role or a visible role in the story, but they're there. The wedding guests, what we're going to see in the guests is Jesus is generous with his mercy. Imagine being a guest at this wedding. How disappointing. Like I said, when I receive a wedding invitation, I don't look for the names first. I look for the venue and the menu first. Yes, I will go, right? I expect a good time and a feast. Well, so did they. They're only a couple days into this thing, and already the wine is gone. But what have they been drinking? Well, poor family, poor groom. They've been drinking some inferior wine, probably different levels of inebriation. So now the the fun is dried up at the party, right? The life has been sucked out of the party because the wine's gone. They're thirsty, so they're craving more to drink, but there's none to drink. They're thirsty. Likely they're a little bit hungover, a little bit of a headache. They're just not feeling well. Um... And there's no wine coming, no wine to be had. They've drunk it up. They don't feel well. The groom, the host of the party is incapable of providing any more. And then in steps Jesus. And just to show you how significant this is, guys, and why it's relevant to us, let me show you a passage in Amos, just two verses, very brief. This is Amos chapter 9. And wine was very symbolic for God's people in this sense. Wine was representative of joy, and it was representative of restoration and happiness and peace. And it came to be a symbol that when God's promised rescuing king would come to deliver them, wine would flow freely again. And so it was symbolic in the sense in hard times, the wine dried up. There was no wine to be had. Look at what Amos says here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows a seed. Look at these next two lines. This is poetry, but here's what it says. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild the ruined cities. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. So you can feel it in the poetry, right? restoration, renewal, reconciliation, life out of death, light out of darkness, healing my brokenness, my wounds being restored, all these things that wine is representative. And did you see the words? God is so rich in mercy that this kind of wine, look at what it says, the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. Guys, that's really good news for us because not only are we like the groom, we are like the guests at the wedding. The drink is gone. Your thirst is not able to be satisfied. And look, just like the groom was exposed, as guests at the wedding, we get exposed. You know what we get exposed for? There are two kinds of guests. You're 
in your lifetime, you're either still in the first half of the wedding before the wine is gone, or you're in your, the second half of the week. And in the first half, most of us live that out in our youth, where we're chasing after all the wine, if you will, that this world has to offer, all the Jesus substitutes. We find our identity and our purpose and our meaning and our fulfillment, all these things in other places. Eventually, that wine will dry up and leave you with a brutal spiritual hangover. Some of you have, are still living right there and it's not dried up yet. But in God's mercy, the day will come where that wine dries up. And that will be one of the kindest things that God allows in your life because it will expose your need for him. Some of you already have the story of Amos where the mountains in your life just absolutely opened up and cascaded life-giving wine down off the hills for you. And you're like, yo, let me tell you the story about how kind the father is to me. That's what Jesus is signaling. It's not only the true and better wine, the true and better groom, he's the true and better wine. And in God's mercy, he is going to pour forth life and renewal and restoration for his people. So Jesus is kind in mercy. Jesus is rich in mercy. And he's so generous in mercy. He pours out his mercy on undeserving guests like you and me. Which leads us to the fourth sign. And um, I think we can see ourselves here, too, in the servants. Uh, the servants were addressed twice. Once mom told them to do something. Once Jesus told them to do something. In verse 8, look at what Jesus says to the servants. Simple sentence. He says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So he had turned the water into wine. Remember, there were six jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. So let's just make it, let's just say half of them were 20, half of them were 30. How much wine do we have? 150 180 gallons, somewhere in that range, 140, 180, whatever. That's a lot of wine. More wine than the wedding party needed. So much wine that they could drink it for the entire, for the remainder of the feast and have way too much left over. They would have to bring it to neighboring towns and neighboring villages and neighboring counties. And guys, if there, is, if there is a more beautiful picture of the gospel in this story, I don't see it. And here it is. Jesus is limitless. When the mountains cascade down life-giving wine, it's not like an initial cascade that will dry up. And Jesus is like, I hope you get it all together in this initial wave, this initial avalanche of wine. Because once it's dry, you're on your own. It is a limitless supply. His mercy is limitless. And the invitation that he gives to the servants is the invitation that he gives to you this morning. And what does he say? I want you to draw it out. I want you to draw out the wine. And guys, Jesus wants us to draw out and drink deeply from him. And so what sign do we need to see in the servants? Jesus' <clears throat> limitless gift of mercy to us is this. There are some of you in this room who are absolutely wrecked and weighed down with guilt and shame right now because you know this week you have dishonored your father. You have stepped out from underneath your allegiance to Jesus. You have spurned what he says, what he calls you to, the life that he's given you. And you've, you have gone right back to the rebel ways that you lived in before he rescued you. Some of you grew up in a religious setting, and so your response to this is, I will work really hard to get back to my dad. Guys, you can't make this, and you can't buy this. And Jesus comes, though, and he says to you, draw this out from me and drink. 
satisfy your thirst. This is good news for us. We feel this. We have unquenchable appetites. We're constantly trying to drink from somewhere. And in this gift, Jesus is showing every place we go in this world, all of the things that we choose to draw life from apart from him will dry up and leave us spiritually hungover and thirsty. Jesus says, every time you do that, I want you to come back to me and I want you to draw from me and I want you to drink and find your life restored. Guys, Jesus is kind. Jesus is rich in mercy. Jesus is generous in that mercy. And the best news for you is he's limitless in that mercy because you need limitless mercy and so do I. Because guys, let's just be honest as a family. In our sin this week, our, our sin has run deep, yeah? I mean, it's led us to some dark places. Your sin runs deep. But the true and better wine that is Jesus, his mercy runs deeper still. This is really good news for us because there are people in here this morning, I've talked to you this week, I've sat down with you, I've cried with you. Your sorrows sting right now. Your sorrows are lingering. And the good news of the gospel, Jesus, or guys, in his kindness, Jesus' mercy lingers longer still. The sweetness of the wine from Jesus will outlast the bitterness of the sorrow that you feel right now. Not only will it outlast, the more you drink from Jesus, though he may not take the pain or the sorrow away, the sweetness of the wine from Jesus will eventually overpower the bitter taste of your sorrow. So that's good news for those of us who sin. It's good news for those of us who sorrow. And for those of you who are wounded, Again, the sign points to Jesus' intention to restore and renew all things in the lives of his kids and in this world. Limitless mercy. You know what else it frees us up to do? If his mercy is limitless and through that mercy I've been forgiven, I can drink enough of that wine that my cold, dead heart, my closed hands, my closed heart find liberty and freedom and actual desire to forgive the people who've wounded me. If I can drink so deeply from Jesus' wine that I feel rest, find restoration and renewal, I can extend that same mercy to the people who have violated me. You know how liberating and life-giving that is? So family, we want an honest, we want an honest environment here. We're family. And um, we're not going to raise hands, but can we just all agree that most of us, all of us, tend to draw life from places other than Jesus. And when we do draw life from Jesus, it's like, God, got it, got my sip, got my quiet time. Like I sip from Jesus. Guys, the image that Jesus wants us to see in this story is that he is pouring out his wine and invites you undeserved. There's nothing else you have to do. Draw and drink and drink deeply. And the more you drink, the more you will find renewal and reconciliation with the Father and with the people around us in this lifetime. Jesus is kind. Jesus is rich. He's generous. And his mercy towards us is limitless. Ethan's going to come and lead us in a communion and also a prayer of confession where we can just be honest with each other and honest with our dad. Mm-hmm.